You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 3, 7 through 13. Would you please open your Bibles or your devices and read along with me? Ephesians 3, 7 through 13. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, EBF family. My name is Tim, and I have the humble privilege of serving here as lead pastor. And this past week, I was finally able to get inside of the MIC, the Music Institute of Chicago. And uh, it excites me even more for when we will be able to physically gather once more in a large setting to worship God. Please know that we are working behind the scenes to prepare for that day. And in this, in this season, I have sensed God reminding me of how much I have taken the church gathered for granted. So let us all remember that longing to connect with God and to connect with one another as an entire church and to rejoice even more when we're, we're able to do that. You know, this weekend has a great amount of significance to it as we pause to remember and celebrate the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And in the spirit of Dr. King, I'm calling our church to a day of fasting and prayer tomorrow, January 18th. On Monday at noon, let's hit the streets and let's pray over our community by doing a prayer walk together. And for those who are willing and able, let's also uh, fast a meal that day. And feel free to, to prayer walk with other members of EBF in your neighborhood using the prayer guide that we've sent out. And this is an especially important time to pray for peace, to pray for the upcoming inauguration and for the healing of our fractured nation, for the advancement of the gospel here in Evanston and beyond and so much more. So would you join us that day as we, as we prayer walk throughout our community and our neighborhoods? This morning, there is a, a prayer of confession and repentance that was written by, um, by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that I thought was just so applicable to where we, we are. And he wrote this on July 26th, 1953. And I would ask that this prayer of repentance and this prayer of confession would, would resonate in all of our hearts as we pray this together. So let's pray. O thou eternal God, out of whose absolute power and infinite intelligence the whole universe has come into being, we humbly confess that we have not loved thee with our hearts, souls, and minds. We have not loved our neighbors as Christ loved us. 
We have all too often lived by our own selfish impulses rather than by the life of sacrificial love as revealed by Christ. We often give in order to receive. We love our friends and hate our enemies. We go the first mile but dare not travel the second. We forgive but dare not forget. And so as we look within ourselves, we are confronted with the appalling fact that the history of our lives is the history of an eternal revolt against thee. But thou, O God, have mercy upon us. Forgive us for what we could have been but failed to be. Give us the intelligence to know thy will. Give us the courage to do thy will. And give us the devotion to love thy will. In the name and spirit of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. With those words, Paul turns from the mystery of the gospel in Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 6, to the ministry of the gospel in verses 7 through 13. And this is a passage that is central to the overall theme of Ephesians of the unity of the church in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, all according to God's providential plan. The mystery of the gospel entrusted to Paul and revealed by God to the apostles and prophets, is that Jewish and Gentile believers alike are part of the multi-ethnic people of God and are heirs together, members together, and participants together in Christ Jesus through God's gospel. The gospel, the good news of what God has done through Christ, is the very instrument through which we are made heirs together, members together, and participants together in the new, beautiful, multi-ethnic community called the church, all because of our being in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says here at the beginning of verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister. It's easy to read a phrase like this and think immediately of Paul's unique apostolic ministry and his part in the very foundation of the church He talks about the apostles and the prophets being the foundation of the church in chapter 2, verse 20. After all, Ephesians opens, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. But here, Paul uses the term minister. And when we hear that term, we can't help but think of a pastor or someone in full-time ministry, or we might think of even a particular governmental leader, a minister of a particular uh, governmental office. But the word simply means one who executes the commands of another, a helper or attendant, the servant of a king. You'll notice some versions translate this word servant. So it says, of this gospel, I was made a servant. In Mark 10, 42 through 45, Jesus grounds the call to serve. He grounds the very call to serve in the reason that he was sent in the first place. If you flip over to Mark chapter 10, verses 20, or 43 through 45, it says this. Actually, up, back up to verse 42. And Jesus called them, his, his disciples, to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, the truth is that every disciple of Jesus Christ is called to be a minister or a servant of God's gospel. And we all have unique roles to fulfill in that service. And for some, it might very well be vocational ministry. But we are called to minister the gospel wherever we live, learn, work, play, or worship. And we, we must move past the notion that ministry is left only to a few paid professionals. We need each other. We need the various members of the body. And together we advance the ministry of the gospel. So as we approach this passage here this morning, there will be aspects of this ministry that are specific, yes, to Paul and to his life, but there are aspects of this ministry that apply to every follower of Jesus Christ. Our heart for EBF is that rather than a, a collection of spectators, we would be a mobilized congregation together in the ministry of the gospel. So to tweak a lyric from Counting Crows, we belong in the service of the King. As we open up Ephesians 3, 7 through 13 here this morning, we are going to discover five characteristics of a minister of the gospel. Five characteristics highlighted in the life of Paul and these characteristics that are instructive for all believers today in the service of the King. So let's dive in beginning with the first characteristic, and that is that a minister of the gospel is first overwhelmed by the extravagant grace of God. Look at verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8 as well. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Paul has already shared how the gift of God's grace rescues us and connects us to the body of Christ. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not only, though, does God's grace connect, but it also commissions us for our God-given task. Paul speaks of being made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So God's grace is extended to us not only in the gift of salvation, but also in the gift of ministry. Paul acknowledges that the receiving and the exercising of this gift is all because of the power of God working in his life. And when he reflects on God's power, he can't help but think of his own dramatic conversion story. Christ completely changed the very trajectory of his life. He took Paul from, being, from, from murderously ravaging the early church to earnestly championing the cause of Christ in his gospel. And so he says, though I am the very least of all the saints. He says this not in a false humility, but in a keen awareness of the depths to which he plummeted and the heights to which he has been raised. He has a profound awareness of his own sin. In 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16, he writes, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, 
that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Then in considering his place among the apostles, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Here in Ephesians, he takes a step further from the least of the apostles to the very least of all the saints, all of God's people. Last week, we saw Paul coin a term to drive home his point. Here he does something similar, almost like grammatical gymnastics. He takes the word least and adds an ending onto it to make it like leastest. Paul stands amazed that God in his marvelous grace would rescue someone like him and position him at the front of the formation that was advancing Christ's kingdom. The reality is that all believers share the gift of salvation by the sheer grace of God. But not all believers have the exact same grace gift for ministry. We'll certainly see this emphasized later in Ephesians 4, but by way of preview, Ephesians 4, 7 reminds us, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We might think of these gifts as as spiritual gifts, as they have come to be known, but we could also call them grace gifts. Like I said, we'll spend more time exploring these more fully, but I, I want us already to be considering, to be praying, asking the question, what is the grace gift God has given me in the ministry of the gospel? Another takeaway for us to consider is the power that lies behind the receiving and the exercising of this grace gift is God's supernatural power through His Spirit. We may face the temptation to be self-sufficient, to try to muster up ministry on our own. There is only so much that can be accomplished out of our own bag of tricks. We must remain plugged into the true source of power. Without the Spirit, everything falls apart. And like Paul, we must have a profound awareness of our own sin and the great lengths God went to in order to rescue us. He urges us in Ephesians 2, 11 through 12 to remember who we were. Paul felt as though he didn't deserve the honor to carry out the ministry of the gospel. But unfortunately, the opposite can sometimes be true in our lives. How easily we can develop an attitude that God owes us. Think about the parable of the prodigal son, or maybe better, a better title is the parable of the two lost sons. What is the attitude of the older brother in response to the stunningly warm welcome of his lost younger brother? Remember what he says? He says, look, these, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, he says to his father. Ephesians 3 verse 7 rightly reorients us toward the truth that our salvation and our specific ministry is only by the sheer grace of God. A minister of the gospel is overwhelmed by the extravagant grace of God. Here's the second characteristic. 
a minister of the gospel shares the riches of Christ and sheds light on the plan of God. In the verses that follow, Paul lays out the twofold purpose of God's gift of grace for ministry. Pick up the rest of verse 8 here. It says, To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God, who created all things. Let's take each of those here in turn. First, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This highlights once more God's unshakable call upon Paul to serve as the apostle to the Gentiles. But in the wake of Paul's dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, Christ appeared in a vision to a disciple named Ananias in Acts 9, 11 through 16. In fact, I invite you just to flip over to, the, to that story uh, in Acts 9, right on the heels of Paul's dramatic conversion. It says this, when Jesus appears to this man, Ananias, he says, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. As God's chosen instrument, Paul preached to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He preached to the Gentiles Christ's obedience and humbling himself to the point of death on a cruel Roman cross. He preached Christ's victorious resurrection and defeat of sin and death. He preached Christ's glorious enthronement at the Father's right hand, the reconciliation to God and to one another that is now possible through Christ, the enveloping of Jewish and Gentile believers into the multi-ethnic people of God, and the complete access to the Father that we now enjoy through Christ and by the Spirit, and all of the privileges we now share in being fellow citizens of God's kingdom fellow members of God's family, and fellow stones in God's temple. And this is just a taste of the riches of glory to come when we receive our inheritance in full and see God face to face. These riches in Christ are indeed unsearchable. You know, translators and commentators sometimes try to outdo one another to find perhaps the closest equivalent in English. They use words like inexplorable, untraceable, inexhaustible, incalculable. Think for a moment, though, about a, just a vast body of water. To fathom is to try to measure the depth of the water. The riches of Christ are like an ocean whose depth cannot be measured. They are unfathomable. The second purpose that Paul highlights here is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. This purpose here moves from the preaching or sharing to enlightening or showing. 
and he moves from preaching to the Gentiles to enlightening everyone. Picture a thick, dense fog. The word here for bring to light is like the cutting through of this fog, a fog of spiritual darkness. Paul sees part of his ministry of the gospel as cutting through the darkness, of shedding light upon God's plan, the mystery hidden for ages in God. This mystery he has just laid out earlier, of course, that that Jewish and Gentile believers are heirs together, members together, and participants together in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This mystery was hidden for ages in God, but has now been revealed and should should be shouted from the rooftops. This mystery is anchored in the very God who is the creator and sustainer of all things. One reflection upon this verse I really appreciated from our brother Richard Koken. He, he helps us to think about, the, think about for a moment the, the three wealthiest people in the world. At the moment, it's currently Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Bernard Arnault. And each of them are worth more than $75 billion. But that kind of money cannot buy them a single moment in heaven. They cannot take their vast fortune with them, like the pharaohs tried to do. Without Christ, they are lost for eternity. This should make us seriously consider what kind of wealth we want for ourselves, what kind of wealth we want for our families. In Christ, there are unsearchable, unfathomable riches. As we often sing, here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. A minister of the gospel shares the riches of Christ and sheds light on the plan of God. Here's the third characteristic. Third characteristic of a minister of the gospel. A minister of the gospel maintains a high view of Christ's church. Starting in verse 10, Paul shares then the result of sharing the riches of Christ and shedding light on the plan of God. He writes this, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church is central to God's work in salvation history. We must remember that what Paul has said of God's incredible work of reconciling two previously hostile groups, that of Jews and Gentiles, into the one body of Christ. And it's worth remembering the diversity that lies even behind those terms, the terms of Jew and Gentile. The diversity of those who had a Jewish background is seen in the collection of those who came to Jerusalem at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And as we have noted before, even Gentile became a catch-all to refer to a variety of people who are not religiously Jewish. But it is through the church, the multi-ethnic people of God, that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. Manifold probably isn't a word that we use very often. This isn't talking about a part of a car. It's not an exhaust manifold. 
the word for manifold here means multifaceted. Think of, think of a diamond and the many facets that you see in that diamond as you turn it. The multifaceted wisdom of God. This word can also mean many colored or many splendored. It was used in the first century of flowers, of crowns, and of woven cloth, embroidered material. This word is also used in the Septuagint, that is, the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the coat of many colors that Jacob gave his son Joseph. When Paul says the multicolored wisdom of God might now be made known, he underscores the fact that it is God himself who is doing the revealing. And perhaps the most shocking of all is who is on the receiving end of that revelation. It is the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You know, this is a, this is a phrase that is debated. It can refer to good and evil spiritual powers. We are told in 1 Peter 1.12 that angels long to look into God's plan of redemption. Picture them peering into creation to see what God is up to. But for demons, this is a reminder that God is in the process of uniting all things in Christ and that their ultimate defeat is coming. We do need to be careful, though, not to speculate here uh, as to what is being said. But I think there are, ver- there are some things, a few things that seem clear from, this, from the text. That is that these beings are not all-knowing, especially considering, their, as, as Peter talks about, their, their desire to look into these things. And second, God has not revealed his master plan to them directly, but he reveals his plan to them through the display of the church. And maybe perhaps a third thing that we can note is that we cannot see them, but they can see us. It is as though they are peering into the church to learn the wisdom of God and to see the eternal purpose of God on display. Paul emphasizes once more that this is all according to the eternal plan that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Earlier in Ephesians, we are reminded that God's plan of redemption is not a plan B. It was purposed from eternity past. The church is not a contingency plan that God hastily threw together after Israel failed. No, it is part of God's eternal plan to display His manifold wisdom. The multi-ethnic people of God display the multifaceted wisdom of God. The church is like a beautiful tapestry. Its members come from a wide variety of ethnicities and backgrounds. It is unique in its unity and diversity. Think about when something on earth is so bright that it can be seen from outer space. I have to thank Danny Russell for this illustration. When, when something is so bright that it can be seen from outer space. The multi-ethnic church is similar to that. It is like a beacon that displays the infinite wisdom of God to the heavenlies. The infinite wisdom of God is on display for the entire universe to see. And evil spiritual forces would like nothing more than to create divisions, to keep the church from displaying God's wisdom and beauty in its unity and diversity. And oh, by the way, did you catch the word now again? Like similarly in verse 5? This is not a reality to be reserved 
for heaven. This is not a truth to be put off for the fullness of time. No, the church is to be a model of redeemed humanity now. The barriers are broken down. The multi-hued fellowship of the church broadcasts the multifaceted wisdom of God for the entire universe to see. And so a minister of the gospel must maintain a high view of Christ's church. Fourth, a minister of the gospel draws near to God in Christ. A minister of the gospel draws near to God through Christ. Look at verse 12. In whom, speaking of Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This points back to what Paul said in Ephesians 2 verse 18 that for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. But what Paul adds here is the notion of boldness, the confidence that we can have. We are no longer strangers and aliens. But because of what Christ has done, we can waltz right in like we own the place. That, that, might, not be the, that might not be quite the right way of putting it, but, but you might get the idea from that. Picture Dorothy and the Scarecrow and Tin Man and Lion quaking as they approach who they think is the Wizard of Oz. That's not how we approach God. We have confidence, but not a self-confidence. It is, it is a freedom and confidence that comes from being adopted into God's family. And so matter, no matter where we've come from or what we've done, we can confidently approach God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are no longer strangers or, or enemies. We are sons and daughters of the King. That means that we can be real with God. We can be raw before him. Think of David in the Psalms, how he, how he pours out his heart before the Lord. He doesn't, he doesn't whitewash his prayers before coming to God. And neither should we. Even Jesus agonized in prayer with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hebrews 4.16 reminds us, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so, dear church, a minister of the gospel draws near to God through Christ. And the last characteristic is that a minister of the gospel is willing to suffer for Christ not only to suffer for Christ, but on behalf of others. Paul ends this, this portion of Ephesians in much the same way that he began in verse 1. But he ends with this, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul returns to what he has mentioned in, in verse 1, that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. His imprisonment and his suffering are like bookends on this passage. And what he does is he urges the Ephesians to not lose heart over what he is suffering for them. They might be discouraged to see Paul in prison. They might be discouraged to see that as a setback. But Paul sees it as 
being for them and for their glory. Remember, he was in prison over his conviction of Gentile equality with Jewish believers. He was in prison because of his conviction about the multi-ethnic people of God. And so Paul's sufferings enable them to experience glory, both the glory that comes now in being part of this new people of God and the glory to be revealed when Christ comes again in glory. God's great gospel is woven throughout this text. God's great gospel is on display in practically every verse. It begins with the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. This was not a plan B. It centers on God who is the creator and sustainer of all things. But we rebelled against our creator. Sin entered the world and we became spiritually dead. Think of Paul's profound awareness of his own sin, his own brokenness before God, and the unsearchable riches of Christ. Much like every spiritual blessing that we see earlier in Ephesians 1, include his obedience, Christ's obedience and humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. His victorious resurrection and defeat of sin, his glorious enthronement at the Father's right hand, the reconciliation to God and to one another that is now possible through Christ, and the enveloping, the welcoming in of Jewish and Gentile believers into the new multi-ethnic people of God made possible through Christ's body. More of these unsearchable riches of Christ include the complete access to the Father that we now enjoy through Christ and by the Spirit, that access that we now have with boldness and with confidence where we can come before Him, we can cry out to Him like those adopted into His family, Abba, Father. We now share in those privileges of being fellow citizens of God's kingdom, fellow members of God's family, and fellow stones in God's temple. And the multi-ethnic church is to be a beacon into the very heavenlies of the multifaceted wisdom of God. This is just a taste of the riches of glory to come when we, we receive our inheritance, when we receive our inheritance in full, and when that day comes when we see God face to face. Suffering will give way to glory. God's plan to unite all things in Christ will be complete. Dear church, of this gospel, we are to be ministers. Of this gospel, we are to be ministers who are overwhelmed by the extravagant grace of God. Ministers who share the riches of Christ and shed light on the plan of God. Ministers who maintain a high view of Christ's church Christ's church that is a beacon to the heavenlies, even in its multi-ethnic makeup, a beacon to the heavenlies of the multifaceted wisdom of God. Let us be ministers who draw near to God through Christ. And may we be willing to suffer for Christ and on behalf of others. Of this gospel, we are ministers. Amen, church. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you.
for your purpose and plan. And Father, for how you purposed to send your one and only Son. And through his body, broken for us, through his glorious resurrection, we can be welcomed into the family of God and made one with one another. And Father, we thank you for this great grace that you have lavished upon us, this grace that not only has connected us to you and to one another, but this grace you give us to to minister your gospel, to serve up your gospel to everyone around us. And so God, as we go, help us to minister your gospel where we live, where we learn, where we work, worship, and play for the furtherance of your kingdom and until we see you face to face. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' precious, matchless, and holy name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.